0: Father, thank you for your word to us, read, and we pray as we reflect on them, that the meditations of all our hearts and the words of my mouth may be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. A police officer pulled a driver aside and asked for his license. What's wrong? The driver asked, I didn't go through any red lights and I certainly was not speeding. No, you weren't, the policeman said. But I saw you waving your fist as you swerved round the lady driving in the left lane. And I further observed your flushed and angry face as you shouted at the driver of the SUV who cut you off. And how you pounded your steering wheel when the traffic came to a stop near the bridge. "Are those crimes?" the driver asked. "No, but when I saw the "Jesus loves you," and I so do I bumper on the car on the bumper sticker on the car," I figured the car had to be stolen. Bumper stickers are meant to express the car owner's uh, view and so on. And this guy was displaying a bumper sticker that says one thing and acted in a way that was completely different from what was said. And we call people like that hypocrites, don't we? The Chamber Dictionary defines hypocrisy as the act of pretending to have feelings, beliefs, or principles which one does not actually have. Calling it an act comes from the original word, which is a Greek word, hypocrisis, hypocrisy, from which hypocrisy means. Uh, And that means play acting. Hippocrates or a hypocrite referred to the actors who wore masks when they went on stage for these Greek dramas or Greek plays. And the mask would portray, portray various roles that they would play and sometimes one actor would just change Uh, one mask for another if he were taking on a different role. But these masks were not the person. They were not what that person was inside. And it's kind of like for us here in Asia, the Chinese opera shows, those stage operas where the actors wear thick makeup, certain uh, colors and certain... Uh, types of makeup would depict or would portray certain kinds of character. So when you look at um, the face, the actor and the makeup, you would kind of know this is a good guy, this is the villain, this is the damsel in distress, but it's not the real person who is playing that role as such. And so hypocrite, as we understand it today, as the word evolved used by uh, the biblical writers shows outwardly something very different from what is going on inside a person, whether it is feelings, intentions, or simply what is inside the heart. The outside is not in sync with what is inside. The thing with this is that we can only mask what is inside for so long. Eventually, what is inside our hearts does come out. They don't stay hidden for long. And it is most obvious in the way we treat people or in our relationships, like it or not, eventually the reality inside of us come out. He was a hypocrite. Dad would talk about peace and love out loud to the world, but he could not show it to the people who supposedly meant the most to him his wife, and son. This was said about Beatle John Lennon by his son, Julian, who had been abandoned by his father when he was aged five. How can you talk about peace and love and have a family in bits and pieces? No communication, adultery, And divorce, you can't do it, not if you're being true and honest with yourself. That's what Julian Lennon says. Sorry, John Lennon fans, but this is who he was as his son saw it. And all of what was really inside came out in his relationship with his wife and his son. And that was what it was with the Pharisees and the experts in the law, or some versions call it the scribes. They were demanding of people and of themselves that rituals, observances, and practices be carried out according to the law. In the nitty-gritty rules, everything had to be done in the right way, in a certain way. But in doing that, they missed the heart of the law. And though others did not see it, Jesus saw it very clearly and called them out on it. This whole thing that led up to Jesus calling out the Pharisees and the experts in law kind of began very ordinarily. Jesus had delivered a man who had been uh, possessed by a spirit that made him mute, dumb. Some in the crowd who had witnessed it put it down to the devil that Jesus had done it through the devil, the power of the evil one. If you read uh, earlier on in chapter 11 by Beelzebub, which meant the Lord of the Flies. And so Jesus had corrected the people, had told them that it is by the finger of God he did that and that the kingdom of God was now present. And he warned them that if they do not repent, judgment will come. And it will come even harder than the pagan countries around them who recognized when God spoke. And so out of this, the Pharisee We don't know his name unlike the earlier episode where we uh, had Jesus calling the Pharisee by name Simon. Here the name is not stated, must have been in the crowd and extended an invitation to Jesus to come to his home for dinner. Michael Card says this, author, musician, you should always be careful about inviting a prophet to dinner. Especially if you are going to be nitpicky about ritual cleaning before meals and will react visibly when Jesus doesn't follow those rituals. You need to be careful. Now the thing about this washing is it's not the kind of washing that we will tell our children, wash your hands and get them clean before dinner. You know, we have in the toilet, uh, I'm not sure, the men's toilet, the ladies' toilet has a poster that teaches you how to wash your hands and make sure they're thoroughly clean. Now, this ritual washing was not that kind of get the germs out of your hands kind of cleaning. It was simply uh, pouring water over the hands and doing that, and that was it, a ritual. A ritual a symbolic act of being clean before a meal. For us, it may not be a big deal, but for the Pharisees, that was what it meant and that was part of what being holy meant. They were earnest about being obedient to the Lord. There was no doubt about their zeal and sincerity of keeping the law. And in, where, where interpretation of the law is concerned, Jesus was on the same side as the Pharisees. But it was how they lived out that law and where their heart was regarding the law that Jesus stood apart from them. Nothing was really said. Uh, All we are told is that the Pharisee, knowing that Jesus did not first wash before the meal, was surprised. And that surprise must have been very evident on his face. And perhaps even a certain judgmental uh, thing must have shown in his eyes. And so, Jesus called them out and in true prophet fashion proceeds to announce woes upon them because of their hard attitude. Woe was a word that was used by prophets when they announced God's judgment upon the people of God to say that it will go badly with them because they were not doing, or they were not where God wanted them to be. They were not being the people God wanted them to be. The Pharisees were so concerned with those little nitty-gritty details of ritual and law-keeping, they forgot the God who created the outside and the inside is concerned with both. In fact, more concerned with the inside, with the heart. And Jesus was not slow in reminding them. They were so nitpicky about the ritual washing, the outward action, that inwardly they neglected the fact that there was greed and there was wickedness in their hearts inside. And then Jesus reminds them that God created both. And he's concerned with both, more the inside than the outside. Again, outwardly, they would put aside 10% of what they got, even the herbs they grew. And so if they had... uh, 10 stalks of wheat, they harvested 10 stalks of wheat. They would put aside one for God. They planted herbs like dill and mint and other things. And so if they plucked 10, they would take one and put it aside for God. Although I don't know what God will do with one mint leaf. But they did. Unfortunately, in their hearts... They didn't care whether justice was done or whether there was love of God in their hearts or whether it was shared with someone. When we believe we have got it right, and we are in the right, it opens, It just simply opens the door for pride to make its way into our hearts. The Pharisees were in that place, and they believed they deserved the best seats in the synagogue, right in front, where whether they stood up in prayer, or sat down, or bowed in prayer, people would see. They bask in the greetings they received from people in the marketplace. As they walked, people would look at their robes and say, "Ha, ah, those are the holy ones and greet them. Maybe some of their holiness would rub off on the common people and they loved that. But what rubbed off, Jesus said, was really uncleanness. See, in the Jewish law, when people walked over a grave, they would be considered unclean because they had, in a sense, come into contact with dead, what was dead, the dead body. And so an unmarked grave was a dangerous thing because people would walk over it without knowing and become unclean. And the Pharisees were like that. People don't see the uncleanness inside them. And so they would come, maybe kiss their hand and uh, greet them and all that. And they would become Unclean. Outwardly, they seem to be people who walk close with God, acting in the right way, but in reality, they drove people away from God with their judgmental attitude. And so after saying all this, and you can imagine the dinner guests getting a little bit more uncomfortable, the Pharisee kicking himself and wishing he had never invited Jesus, one of the guests speaks up. At least he dares to confront Jesus and say, Jesus, when you say that about the Pharisees, we are affected too, you know. Perhaps implying that surely you would not want to insult us, experts in the law, because we know the law. And I bet he regretted saying that, because Jesus launched into another series of woes upon the experts in the law. The experts in the law, or some versions call them lawyers, some, persons, some versions call them scribes, were people who studied the law. They knew the law inside and out. They didn't teach the law like rabbis did but they interpreted the law for the people. They were the ones who were supposed to understand what the law required of God's people. And they, of all people, when you think about it, having studied the law, would be those who would understand God's heart. God doesn't hide his heart in the law. He doesn't give a whole list of instructions although we call it law really the Torah, the first five books. They are really instructions and instructions come not just in the form of commands but there they are also stories that tell us instruct us how God deals with people. And Moses tells that Israelites, God's people, God did not choose you because he was impressed with your greatness. God did not choose you because you were the largest among all the nations. In fact, you're the smallest. It wasn't because God was impressed with you. It was because God loved you. God chose to love you. And that's why you receive his love. And so that love revealed in the Lord never got to the experts. They never picked it up for whatever reason. In fact, the way they interpreted the law made keeping the law a heavy burden on people. They could have lightened the law in the way they interpreted it. Uh, In those days, there were two schools of thought in the way the law was interpreted. There was the school following one rabbi called Shammai, and they were very strict. Everything had to be done right, including washing the outside of the cup. There was another school called the Hillel School, which was more open in terms of interpreting the law. And what this school was saying is, take care of the inside, and the outside will take care of itself. And they could have interpreted the law according to Hillel, but more often than not, it was Shammai they followed, very strict. And so, for example, if we move... To a little bit forward, and we will look at that in the weeks to come. Chapter 13 Jesus heals a woman who has been crippled in bondage for 18 years. Instead of being happy and rejoicing, the ruler of the synagogue comes and tells the people, Today is Sabbath. You're not allowed to heal on a Sabbath. You've got six days to come. Don't do this on a Sabbath. Come the other six days. For us, it seems mind-boggling. But for them, that was the right thing, at least for the ruler of the synagogues and people who were like him, that was the right thing to do. They missed God's heart. Because in the law, if you read it carefully, you will find that it was not just justice, but compassion in the law. If you remember, you are allowed to take collateral when you loan someone money, a cloak, whatever. But if it was a cloak, you had to give it back at night so that the person would not freeze in the night. The experts in the law missed that completely. And so Jesus also held them responsible for the blood of the prophets, the experts of the law. They should know better. They built monuments for the prophets that their ancestors killed, thinking to honor the prophets. But Jesus said, Really, where the heart is concerned, you are just like your ancestors. Building those tombs, building those monuments simply showed your support for your ancestors and not honor for the prophets. Being the ones who studied the law, they were the ones who held the key for people to come to God, to know God. They would not come to know God themselves. They took the key, hid it behind their backs, and prevented others from coming to know God. The woes that were pronounced by Jesus sounded harsh. But he had a reason for that. It was because they were blockades. They were stumbling blocks to people who would come to know God. No wonder the scribes and the Pharisees kept finding ways to trip Jesus up because he had struck at the very heart of what meant the most to them. We need to realize that it is very easy to fall into religious hypocrisy. And this is a thing that gets at especially for those who are earnest in keeping the rules or the law, in being good, staying out of trouble. And if you remember the elder brother in the story of the prodigal son, he was angry because the younger son, his younger brother, did not follow the rules and left home, taking the inheritance with them. Perhaps there was jealousy as well. And then, when the brother came back, he was scandalized because the father did not follow the rules as well, extending love and accepting his brother back. In our day, we don't really have to go far. We say all religions teach us to love, but when we open the newspapers, we see examples of religious hypocrisy, don't we? The reason religious hypocrisy becomes so easy a situation, a condition to fall into is because it is about control. All of us have a need, like it or not, to be in control so that our life goes well. The question for us is who do we depend on for life to turn out well. God calls us to holiness. How do we measure holiness? God calls us to be obedient to him. How do we measure obedience? And so to keep control, it's always much easier to tick off little boxes on a list of rules and markers and measurements then to relate to someone and suss out the heart and catch the heart. It's easy. Did you wash your hands? Yeah, okay, tick. Did you wear your skull cap? No, wrong. And so on and so forth. Okay, one out of nine, not too bad. And we can grade people. Outward actions. But we forget the heart. If we fall into religious hypocrisy, our hearts are not in sync with the actions we carry out or the beliefs we profess to have. For example, if we speak of the church being a place to find God's grace. And if someone sins and comes and seeks forgiveness, repenting of that sin, but it is not given, then the church is guilty of hypocrisy and the church is you and I. A story of a student in a college who played a prank on faculty member goes up to one of the professors and says, apologizes, repents, and says, sorry. In turn, the professor looks at the guy and gives him a lecture about how useless he is and how he would never be successful. That's religious hypocrisy because it was a Christian college. Not in our country. If we preach God's grace and say that it is the main thing in our faith and we cannot accept others then who see things from a different perspective, if we don't hear them out, if we don't make an attempt to understand or at least see where they're coming from, then we fall into religious hypocrisy. If we are not careful This first step of refusing to see and refusing to be open progresses to our hearts being hardened. Like the Pharisees, we end up not having compassion at all. Instead, we become judgmental. And we become referees that are trigger-happy with red cards, waving them at people who we think infringe the rules. Our mouths sing praises to God. We sang that just now. All for love. Praise God. But in reality, our hearts are far from God. The exact condition of the people in Isaiah and Jeremiah's time, two centuries between the two prophets, and people then had not changed. Your lips honor me, but your hearts are far away from me, God told the people through both these prophets. And we think we know God, but that is not the God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. The people in Isaiah and Jeremiah's day thought they knew God, but that was not the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that they knew. And what happens is we become stumbling blocks then to prevent others from coming to Jesus. And that's why Jesus came down hard on the Pharisees and the experts of the law. They are the ones who claim to know God. They are the ones who claim to represent God but instead, they become obstacles to people who would come to God, they put others down through being judgmental. And if we think about it, people who claim to be close to God but are judgmental and hypocritical, kind of makes us think twice about whether we want to know the God. That they know or they claim to represent. Is it safe even to trust a God represented by people like that? Religious hypocrites become blind to one's need for God. Religious hypocrites are in a state of self deception. And because they believe they're already close to God, they end up believing that they don't need any more of God's work in their hearts. They end up not being open to God. And they become bitter roots that poison the whole tree. Bitter people who poison the community of our Lord Jesus Christ. We may think, Aya, we leave these people be, la. just don't go near them. Have nothing to do with them. But it doesn't work that way. Where there is bitterness, whether or not we interact with the person, as long as that person is in the community, the whole body of Christ is affected. And I don't think that is where we would like to be. So given all this, how do we deal with religious hypocrisy? How do we prevent ourselves from falling into this? Because note, it affects religious people. It doesn't quite affect non-religious people. Sinners who recognize and acknowledge they are sinners... They don't fall into this. They're honest about themselves. They have other sins that they need to confess. But hypocrisy, religious hypocrisy, is not one of them. So what kind of antidote can we take? One of the things Jesus says when he... Reminded them that God made the inside and the outside. And to, he said, give alms, give for alms what is on the inside and the whole thing will be clean. Giving alms to the poor was something God took very seriously. And if you read uh, the law, the first five books of the Bible, over and again, God's heart is for the poor. It is because God is generous. He blesses his people so that they can bless those who are in need. And so, God does not say to give handouts to the poor. One of the things God says is when you have land and you have crops and you harvest those crops, you don't harvest 100% or 110% until nothing is left take everything yourself. You leave certain crops, certain portion of your crop for the poor to come and harvest. So the poor themselves had to take the step to come and do the work and harvest the grain for themselves. It was there for them. They have to come and pick it up and get it themselves. And so they maintain their dignity. God thinks of things like that. One commentator looks at this slightly differently and says, you need to give alms to what is inside because your heart is so poor. And I think we can see it both ways. That when we make, when we choose to give alms, it overcomes and give it from the heart. It overcomes this religious hypocrisy because we mirror God's generosity. Of course, we don't give it with a string attached. You're obliged to me because I give. Give alms means no strings attached. And holiness really is also seen. It's not measured But it is seen in the way we relate to others. John Wesley says there's no social, there's no holiness except that which is social. And so that's the first antidote to give alms, to give to the poor. The second antidote for religious hypocrisy is self examination and confession. Adele Calhoun in the Spiritual Disciplines Handbook, Practices That Transform Us, writes this, and she kind of describes hypocrisy. We are invested in looking like good moral people. After all, appearing good is one way of dealing with the notion or the idea that something is wrong with us. We haven't murdered anyone or robbed a bank. And furthermore, when we do wrong, we try to fix it and make it better. We can put a great deal of energy into maintaining the image that we are good, moral people. But this very appearance of goodness can be a way we defend ourselves against our sin. For when we can't see our sin, we have nothing to confess. That's where the Pharisees were. That it was their condition, they and the experts of the law. They could not see their sin. And so, nothing to confess. But nevertheless, it was there. The thing about this discipline of self-examination and confession is that it has to be done, it must be done in God's company. We cannot go into a corner by ourselves and try to do it ourselves because if we do and we see our sins, we list our sins, we confess it, and there, I'm done. We open ourselves again to pride. We must do it in the presence of God. We open our lives, our whole lives, to being examined by God. And we begin with the prayer that the psalmist prayed. "O oh, search me, God, and know my heart. O oh, test me and know my thoughts. See that I follow not the wrong path and lead me in the path of eternal life. Psalm 123. 139 verses 23 and 24. To ask God honestly to search our hearts and to be ready to be honest for what He has to tell us after He has searched our hearts. And then we acknowledge together with David that when our sin is shown us, that it is against God and God alone that we have sinned. Psalm 51. And so, this is one way of doing it. Make time to be in God's presence. Become aware that God is presence and be aware of his love for us. And then we ask God to help us to see ourselves as he sees us. For some, it can be scary. And we think that God may come with us with a big stick and then pronounce wars like Jesus did to the Pharisees. Ah. But we need to remember this one thing. One, God sees and knows us absolutely, completely. And he loves us. The thing about God knowing us completely is this. God cannot be disappointed with us. We get disappointed only when there are expectations to be met and they are not met. And sometimes we are disappointed with ourselves. How many of us have been like that? We disappoint ourselves. Some of us do. Huh? We look at ourselves. Ah, Why did I do that? Ah, where did that thought come from? Where did that action come out? And we disappoint ourselves. And that's because we have set expectations and we expect ourselves to meet that. But because God knows us completely, not that he doesn't have expectations of us, but because he knows us completely, he knows what we are capable of, good and bad, we don't surprise him at all. God cannot be surprised. And so we cannot disappoint God and God loves us. And so when he shows us how he sees us, he does it out of love because he wants us to deal with whatever sin or whatever it is that he sees in us so that we are healed, so that we are made whole, so that we are restored and so that we are brought closer to him. And so we ask him to show us what sin needs to be confessed. It is not an exercise to confess our sins right from when we were young to where we are now. It is much better to allow God to show us a step at a time what is that sin he wants us to confess. And then write that down so that we don't forget And then we confess it to God. And we need to remember this as well. When we confess our sins, God takes that, he removes it from us, cleanses us, and he takes it to the deeper sea and throws it in. And one author says he puts a sign there that says no fishing, including for himself. And sometimes we may say, but you know, uh, I confess this sin and then I go out and I fall into it again. Then come back, confess that. And he takes it and he throws it. He doesn't dig out that sin and say, ha, see, this is the second time you've done it, third time. God doesn't do that. Each time we confess, he takes it, he throws it into the deeper sea. That's what his, his word tells us when we ask for forgiveness, and then that piece of paper you wrote your sin on, don't keep it. Because God doesn't keep it. Burn it. Or if you don't want to burn it, shred it. In a symbolic act of what it means to have God remove your sins from you. Another way is, if you prefer to find a mature christian whom you can trust to be your confidant to keep what you tell confident confidential confess receive forgiveness and then again destroy that piece of paper self examination and confession Religious hypocrisy brings about a delusion on those who practice it. It means it covers our eyes, it deceives us. But it, co- it causes not just us to go far away from God, but also prevents others from drawing near to God. And when we remove religious hypocrisy, then we will stop measuring people and insisting that they perform exactly what we think they should. And when we remove religious hypocrisy, then we open ourselves up to God's grace in all its abundance. So instead of a measuring cup where we make sure the measurement is exact, we find ourselves with a cup that is overflowing with what God has to offer us. And Jesus came to be one of us, to offer us that kind of grace, that kind of life, abundance. God came to us in Jesus, called Emmanuel, God with us. We call that the incarnation. God become man. And we in turn God calls to be with people in an incarnational way, entering into their situation to be with them. And when we are able, with God's help, to care for others, we reduce the chances of getting into religious hypocrisy. Let me share with you something a pastor said. Some of you may have read uh, the news from the United States about how policemen uh, shoot black people, yeah and in a recent case, Geronimo uh, Yanez, the policeman who shot Philando Castile, a black person, was acquitted. The court acquitted him, of course, there is anger. And there is a sense of injustice. But Pastor Greg Boyd of Woodlands Hill Church, uh, somebody posted it online, a clip of what he said to his people in the church in the light of this, is this. The church needs to be incarnational. And he referred to Philippians 2, verses 5 to 11, where it says, Jesus emptied himself, did not hold on uh, to his status and privileges as God, as divine, but emptied himself and became man and found in human form. He became a slave, obedient even to death and death on the cross. That is what it means to be incarnational. And so Pastor Greg Boyd said the church needs to be incarnational. And just as Jesus did not hold on to the privilege and status of being God, but gave that all up to become human and to be with us. So for them, being incarnational means giving up our privileges to be in solidarity with those who weep. Their privileges meaning those who are white. Who very obviously have more privileges. And so you and I, as God's people, as the body of Jesus Christ, we are called to be incarnational. And when we ask God to help us to be that, our hearts are transformed. And that, above all, I would say is the best antidote for religious hypocrisy. Let us pray.